0: Okay, perfect. Reading can feel like grunt work. In that moment, it may not feel like what we often associate with as creativity, which is, you know, these sort of stereotypical eureka moments where literally there's nothing else in your brain and all of a sudden from some, you know, supernatural force, an idea enters your brain literally out of nowhere. I don't believe it. You may not be aware of where it comes from, but it came from somewhere. And the more substrate you can provide your brain and your context and your surroundings with, the better possibilities you will have of discovering something truly new.
1: Welcome to the Night Science Podcast, where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts, I'm Itainai, and I am Martin Lurcher. Today we have with us Cassandra Extravor. Who is a developmental and evolutionary biologist at Harvard University, where she's in the Department of Organismic and Evolutionary Biology. As of last year, she's also an investigator at the prestigious Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And Cassandra's work during her postdoc fellowship at the University of Cambridge led to the surprising recognition of how germ cells are specified in most species. Of course, the germ cells are those immortal cells that form the next generation.
2: Besides doing really cool research, Cassandra also is a champion for diversity and inclusivity. She mentors students from underrepresented groups, and she helped to fund the Pan-American Society of Evolutionary Developmental Biology. And rather unusually for a scientist, Cassandra has a second job. She's a professional soprano singing opera and Baroque music part-time with different professional ensembles around the world. And Itai and I speculate that maybe her wide interests are her superpower, something that makes her such a creative person. And so, Cassandra, we really want to welcome you. Thank you both for putting together the podcast. It's really
0: important and really necessary, especially these days, I think, when the emphasis is just on so much high throughput and data generation and data management, and there's not enough time put to thinking about what are we actually doing in our minds with all of this?
1: Yes, thank you. Thank you.
2: As a first question, Can you tell us about the role of creativity in your day-to-day life as a scientist?
0: You know, creativity, I think, is what drew me to science. The realization that I could potentially make a living out of thinking of and trying to find ways to illustrate ideas, new ideas that I had that might contribute something new to our understanding of the natural world. And so where that has to begin is from the creative process, putting together things that maybe haven't been put together before in exactly that way, and seeing if that new way of looking at things can offer some new understanding
1: of the world. So, Cassandra, when you say putting together ideas that haven't been put together before, can you give us an example?
0: You know, one example is the ways that different branches of science have often thought about things, often are presented and even investigated as viewpoints that are separate from one another, But when you can find a way to see those things as sort of merge two formerly distinct ways of seeing things as the same way or merging them together to create a third way, I think you can get really powerful insight. And so one of the things that I've thought about in the back of my mind for a long time and continue to try to think of new ways to bring forward is how can we apply a population genetics approach and vision to the developmental biology problem that is the establishment and maintenance of the germline, not just in the development of one organism's lifetime, but over evolutionary lifetimes.
2: So the examples that you were giving sound to me like they were all about bridging or building a bridge between one field into another field in order to use ways of thinking or ways of looking at a problem from that field to answer questions in another field. Is that how you see it? Do you think that's a crucial part of your creativity?
0: I think for me, that has always been the most exciting way to think about science and the most exciting areas to find creativity, because they offer me new perspectives that I might not be as familiar with. So yes, bridging Fields or bringing perspectives or visions from one field into another field is something that I really love and that I value about that way of practicing creativity in science.
1: And Cassandra, when you say that you're interested in new questions, do you mean that when you're talking to new colleagues, you're adopting sort of their questions but importing them into your field? Or is it more that you're discovering new questions that maybe have never even been asked before?
0: I think you take the first step in order to get to the second step. One of the things that we sometimes don't spend enough time doing in my view, but we need to spend a lot of time doing is establishing a common vocabulary because it can often seem that someone is talking about something that's not at all related to what you're talking about. But in fact, there are deep connections. It's just that they're using different words to mean things that you would describe with other vocabulary or they're using the same vocabulary as you, but the meaning that they have behind those words is different.
1: Cassandra, really, you're saying that when scientists use terms of the field slightly differently, it's both confusing, but also can be a kind of source for creativity. It could be that a colleague is saying something and they have a different meeting. And that actually is interesting. It makes a connection. And I saw in your work that in many cases, you are not just sort of communicating with contemporary colleagues, but also you're reading old papers, you're synthesizing many generations of work. So do you find that over time too, the the vocabularies change so much, the jargon has changed so much, but it can give you ideas as well?
0: Yes, definitely. And it's a great point that not only talking with contemporary colleagues, but trying to connect with colleagues who are long gone and have just left us their writings and their data and their ideas That we can be fooled into thinking that they weren't concerned with the same problems we are concerned with if we don't understand the ways in which they were using their vocabulary. I mean, one example that comes to mind is segmentation, which in the modern fields of science that I am closest to can mean either a sort of process in computer vision whereby we need to have a computational identification of one object as distinct from another object given a digital image Segmentation is also used in the field of developmental biology and body plan evolution to mean the subdivision of multicellular animal body plans into iterative units that have repeated <laughs> internal right. external functions and uh, organ systems. And in classical embryological literature, you will often find that the word segmentation is used to mean what we would today call mitosis or the very earliest cleavages ah. of a single celled egg into the many cells that will then make up the embryo.
2: Um, I was wondering, when you were talking about this bridging between subfields, an important point to you was to figure out if the other people are asking the same questions that you're interested in, but maybe in different words, or if maybe they're asking different questions that you haven't thought about. And so what I'm wondering is, what is the role of questions in your creative science in relationship to the role of hypotheses, right? You need to be creative to ask the question and then you need to be creative to answer that question to find a hypothesis.
0: I think that defining the question is always the most important thing because you cannot define the hypothesis that is testable and devise ways to try to test these hypotheses unless we are extremely clear about the question that we are asking. And so if I had to rank them, I would put clarification of the question above clarification and then pursuit of a hypothesis.
1: And Cassandra, when you're trying to come up with a hypothesis, can you kind of provide us a window into your process? Do you go for a walk? Is it, Do you use a blackboard? What are some things that have become valuable for you?
0: Yes, that's a great question. I think the things that have helped me are a comment from my thesis advisor on the second day of my PhD thesis on the first day I was in the lab he gave me a stack of things to read he said read these things talk with people in the lab this was a Friday and tell me on Monday what you want to work on (laughs) (laughs)
1: so So much for your weekend (laughs) right
0: so I did a lot of reading and I talked to everybody in the lab and I decided I wanted to work on the germline somehow And I didn't know exactly how, but somehow this group of cells and how they did their thing was interesting to me. And he said, okay, Cassandra, if you're going to work on the germline, you need to know everything possible about it. You need to read the germline. You need to drink the germline. You need to (laughs) sleep the germline. You need to breathe the germline, be the germline. Exactly. And I took him pretty seriously. And I started a practice of, you know, when I wasn't actively engaged with touching my flies or dissecting them or doing things i would read honestly i began to read at random i began with the Mm. things that he gave me and then i looked up the references that those papers cited and read those and then those papers would inevitably be talking about topics that were new to me and i would make a list of those references and i had this huge stack in those days i used to print them out on paper a stack next to my bench of papers. And I put them in this pile in no order. They were just things that I felt I should probably know about somehow. And when I had a free moment, I would just take one off the stack and read it and make notes on it by hand and circle references in it that I knew I needed to look into further. And then they would go into the stack of papers that I've read and made notes on. And I still have that practice now. When I have free time, I will read something from the stack of things that I feel I should know about but I know I don't yet and make notes on what are the things that stand out to me and the more you read the more you can make connections between different things
2: so you are actually highly skilled in another art which is singing which uh, I have to say I find really amazing that you have this second job that you work on but what I'm wondering is I would argue and I'd be interested in if you agree that singing also requires a certain kind of creativity. And I would be interested in what you think about whether there's any relationship between the creativity you use in that part of your life and the creativity that you need in science.
0: I think that there are many commonalities. One commonality is that we were talking before about sort of developing the knowledge base. You know, maybe in singing or in any performing art, An analog is the development not only of the sort of intellectual knowledge base of the history of your sort of performance, whether it's the repertoire, the history of the development of the art form, but you also have your sort of essential skills that need to be practiced. And no one can read a paper for you in science and then have you understand it. And no one can practice your scales for you or your vocal exercises for you and have you then be able to perform it. So there's a huge element of solitary practice and sort of skill building that you have to engage in individually on your own. You can have teachers and you can have coaches to give you feedback, but unless you do the work yourself with your body or your hands or your mind, you won't develop those skills. So that's one thing that they have in common. And another thing that they have in common is one of the reasons that I gravitated towards Baroque music rather than, let's say, romantic music was there was an interesting transition from the Baroque to the classical and then the romantic, whereby the individual interpretation and the individual creativity of the artist in the Baroque era was to be brought forward with minimal direction or minimal instruction. And so a a Baroque score or even a sort of pre-Baroque era score, I'm just talking about, you know, Western, Northwestern music right now, the score was pretty minimalist. It would essentially have a baseline and a chord structure and a melody, not unlike you know, American jazz charts, for example. And it was up to the artist to interpret exactly how they would manifest that chord, exactly how they would decorate that bass melody with their own ideas and their own interpretations. When you move into the classical and then the romantic period, there of course is still an emphasis on transmitting emotion to the audience, which is the purpose of art. However, the arrangers and composers of that day felt that they wanted to write down exactly how the artist should transmit this emotion. And so the use of dynamic markings, sing this really loud, sing this really softly, sing this as if you're crying, sing these notes exactly in this way, because that will transmit the following Mm -hmm. emotion. It was super, super micromanaged in a way that the Baroque era was basically up to you. And I find in science that there's a parallel there, you know, cells are cells and DNA is DNA and the planets are the planets and it's been around for a long time and we don't really know most of it, but how you put it all together really needs to be up to you. And so you need to have a strong foundation, but you also need to have a sense of individual responsibility and ownership as to how you are going to put these things forward and present and say, I think I have some new knowledge, or here is the emotional human story I personally, Cassandra, want to tell you with this song.
1: And when you are now back in the lab, are you also sort of distinguishing the ideas that are more interesting from other ideas, the ones that you do want to follow up by the way they sort of transmit emotions maybe to you that, you know, you have some kind of a gut feeling that these are exciting questions?
0: I do have a sort of gut initial reactions of sort of more or less excitement to new ideas or ideas for new experiments when we're sort of brainstorming these things in the lab.
1: So how do you know? What is the kind of Cassandra question, a topic that makes you more excited than other topics, maybe?
0: I think that the topics that make me most excited are the ones where it is most difficult for me to predict what the answer will be. As long as I think that we could actually get an answer to it, if I not only have no idea how it might turn out, but I also have no idea how we could even generate any data that would put us in a place where we could say how it worked, then I'm also not excited because I'm an experimentalist at heart. I'm not a theorist. And so I want to do something to generate some new data to give us some new information.
2: This is very interesting to me because quite a bit of my work is that I have some ideas, some general ideas about how certain processes work. And I'm really curious if those ideas are actually true, right? I mean, if biological organisms actually are organized the way I think they might be organized. Mm -hmm. So I have a good guess of what the answer could be, but I'm not sure, right? And actually, apart from me, not a lot of people would uh, guess the same answer, But it sounds like that's not the kind of questions that you would be interested in, because there you already have an idea of what the answer would be.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair description.
2: So I I would actually like to come back to my question about the relationship between creativity in your music and creativity in your science. And you talked about the commonalities between the two. But maybe you can specifically talk a bit more about your personal creativity. Of course, creativity is required in both of them. But is there any aspect that you notice yourself are doing when you're performing music that is the same or very similar to something that you're doing when you have to come up with a new question or with an answer to a question that's scientific?
0: Maybe one commonality that I can think about is to try to seek internal consistency. That sounds, the way that I've just said, it sounds a little bit sort of deliberate and maybe not very creative or spontaneous, but sometimes we synonymize creativity and spontaneity or creativity with lack of thought or lack of planning. I actually don't think that those things are the same or that they need to be the same. I think that being creative in music for me is very much about finding how I can express my own voice and show how it is related to the other voices. Whether I'm a singer, let's say with an ensemble and I'm a singer and everyone else is playing some other instrument, or I'm the soloist and there's an orchestra, part of my interest in expressing myself is to express myself in relation to these other elements. And so if the flute does something, I'm interested in showing how my response to that flute, or if I, introduce some new creative element or some new melody or ornament idea. I'm interested in having that mirrored or having it answered by another instrument in the ensemble, because this in my mind is the most interesting form of individual expression. When we express ourselves as individuals and show how we are and how we are not connected to the context that we're in and creativity and science for me maybe has some parallel in that for every new idea or an idea that seems new to me. One thing I am confident of is that someone sometime in history had that idea also before me (laughs) or a very similar one. And I'm extremely interested in finding out what their idea was and showing whether or how my idea relates to theirs and where the similarities and differences are. It's not that I think that Each of us now as individuals alive today, practicing science, have nothing new to contribute. Mm. But I think that what we do have to contribute is more powerful. And the newness of what we bring to it is more powerful when we contextualize it in the context of what is already known. Mm.
1: Wow, Cassandra, that's really interesting. Can you say a little bit more about what you meant when you said that the creativity is not necessarily spontaneous?
0: Yes. What I mean by that is that for me, creativity is the bringing together of new ideas or a new conceptualization. But as we were saying before, new is only relative. So if you don't have anything to connect, Mm. then you have no opportunity there to be creative. If you have no observation to make, even if what you've observed is I can see five leaves, but there's a branch with no leaf on it, then you have nothing new to contribute to. and so reading and putting things in piles and there's a certain amount of it that can feel like grunt work well i have to get through these things or i have to listen to these recordings of these talks that i couldn't make it to but they might contain something useful in that moment it may not feel like what we often associate with as creativity which is you know these sort of stereotypical eureka moments where literally there's nothing else in your brain and all of a sudden from some supernatural force an idea enters your brain literally out of nowhere i don't believe it hmm you may not be aware of where it comes from but it came from somewhere and the more substrate you can provide your brain and your context and your surroundings with the better possibilities you will have of discovering something truly new
2: yeah that really is interesting so one thing you emphasized was that you do a lot of reading like whenever you've got a bit of time you just read a an almost yes. random paper that you think could be useful for yourself and when you have these moments when you suddenly have a You know, you probably also have these flashes of insights that look like they come from nowhere. Can you then reconstruct where they're coming from and what has seeded those insights or you just assume there must be a connection?
0: Yeah, sometimes I can trace them to where they came from, but often I can't. But I know that part of the substrate that I'm using to manifest this idea were things that I learned or observations that I made or something somebody told me in the past. And so they're part of what gets used to express something new, even if it's just, you know, language or a symbol. And I see a parallel between what I was talking about before in terms of different fields of science using the same words to mean different things or, you know, different words to mean the same things. To my mind, there are some ideas that are certain languages are much better equipped to communicate certain ideas and certain concepts about the human condition, about the physical world than others. You know, everything can be expressed in every language, but how easy is it and how elegant is it and how streamlined is it uh, is really variable across languages. And so the more different languages you know, the more opportunities you have to quickly and concisely express
2: new combinations of things. That's really interesting, this aspect that if you have more languages, then it helps you to better formulate or make your ideas more detailed or more, I don't know, more what? What is it actually that these languages help you do?
0: sometimes more clear, you know, some languages, you know, you may be having a conversation with someone who speaks a language that you don't. And you may say, Oh, you know, I'm trying to, you know, that feeling when blah, 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 or, you know what I mean? When sometimes you cross the street and then you get this sense and someone will say, Oh yes, you know, in my language, we have one word for that. And it's this, I mean, English is the master language at appropriation of stealing words from other languages to concisely express something that you could say it in English, but you'd need 16 words but in German, you can say schadenfreude, and then you understand <laughs> what this means.
1: It really seems, Cassandra, that you're multilingual in so many fields, developmental biology, evolutionary biology, molecular biology, ecology, and also population genetics. So I think at the cost of maybe not being a super expert in population genetics, you do benefit from being fluent, at least in many languages.
0: <laughs> well, I think I'm very good at listening. And I think I'm very good at translation, at listening for the things that I don't understand and figuring out how to translate them into a different language. So I think that's very helpful. Cool.
1: Well, Cassandra, this has been really interesting.
2: Thank you so much. This was really, really an interesting discussion.
0: I really enjoyed it. I Thank you both for inviting me to be on the podcast.